Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends, and welcome to the You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan. Uh, you might feel the tension this week. We uh, are doing this via Zoom, maybe due to the baseball playoffs and the Braves and the Phillies are dead in the middle of it here. And we might be have a little tension and are supposed to be in the same room this week. Uh, but we have our national president via Zoom, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, Eddie, I'm doing great. I guess the baseball hasn't quite got to the point where I can't be in the same room with you, but it's headed in that direction. No, I'm uh, out on the West Coast doing some stuff with our members out here. So if the sound quality is a little bit different, that's because we're doing it on Zoom as opposed to uh, in our studio, but we'll make the best of it. Great. Uh, so uh, where were you last week? Yeah, so we've had a lot of stuff going on. Last, I think we may have talked about this on last week's episode. Last week, we had a uh, another one of our Enough is Enough rallies in Compton, California with uh, Branch 1100 and got some outstanding media coverage there from folks in the LA area, both on the television side and, and a, a young reporter really did a phenomenal piece in the LA Times. And then that's, once again, I've said this before, but that's the reason we do these is to... Uh, kind of get the word out and, and raise public awareness among our customers. So did that. And then from there, went to uh, Orlando, Florida, our good folks in Region 9 from Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, had their annual regional training in Orlando. So had a chance to be with them and talk to them about all kinds of stuff and update them on a lot of different things that are happening and answer their questions. So that was fun. And, uh, and then after that, I was fortunate to uh, do something similar with our people in Region 6. So Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan, those folks are, they always had their annual training over Columbus Day weekend. And um, on the holiday, Monday morning was with them. They were in Kalamazoo, Michigan this year. And when I uh, went over there on Sunday, I had an opportunity to stop by one of uh, UAW's picket lines at a strike location and spend a little time with our brothers and sisters there and just encourage them on my way out to Kalamazoo. So that was exciting to, you know, have a chance to be with the members, with the members of UAW there that are standing up for their rights and using their leverage, which is a strike and, you know, had good conversation with them. A lot of ways we've got some parallels with them. If the uh, great recession had a significant impact on the auto industry as i'm sure most people remember and that was reflected in some of the things that took place in their collective bargaining and in a lot of ways kind of similar to the impact that uh, the recession had on the postal service and its revenue and some of the challenges that created in our collective bargaining back then so thankfully now they uh are in a uh, much better bargaining environment and utilizing their leverage in the private sector, which is a right to strike in a very similar way. We're in a better bargaining environment and fully utilizing our leverage, which is the interest arbitration process. So I think we'll probably, normally we have some questions about collective bargaining, so I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later in the Q&A. So it's been a, been a busy time, a lot of activity around the country with our members and I think most importantly, it's opportunities for our people that have stepped up to represent letter carriers to come together and, you know, sharpen their skills and, and learn the things that they need to learn to become better representatives, you know, for our members. So it's always exciting to be with our people that are engaged in doing that kind of work. 
I know we haven't spoken on it, but uh, congratulations to the Writers Guild for getting a contract. I know we had the gentleman on from the Writers Guild on our Labor Day podcast. So congratulations yeah. to them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we had over on the Labor Day special, we had Lowell Peterson, who's the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East. So represents, if you listen to that episode, a lot of the people that uh, on the eastern part of the country do a lot of the writing for things like late night shows and Netflix and, you know, the stuff that most of us consume in terms of watching television. And they had been out on strike for some time. And thankfully, uh, they were able to reach an agreement that addressed some of the concerns they had, as he explained on that episode. You know, their business has really, really changed in, in terms of technology and artificial intelligence is a, a factor in that industry now that, uh, you know, their collective bargaining agreements were, for the most part, the, the language in their agreements was written at a time when, you know, those factors were, they didn't even exist yet. So um, they achieved a really positive agreement for them that included some protections and um, in a lot of ways, um, language that I think we'll see reverberate throughout, you know, the labor movement and in those industries that are dealing with the impact of technology and things like artificial intelligence. So, you know, having been a guest on our podcast, I actually saw Lowell just a couple of days after he was on our podcast at a, at a meeting and, you know, he felt pretty good about their momentum then. And I'm sure for those of you that listened and a lot of letter carriers were out with them, especially in New York on their picket lines. And I think that's good news for, uh, for everybody that, you know, took the time to listen and learn a little bit about, their challenges and tremendous victory for those folks. And we are proud to continue to stand in solidarity with them as they do with us. Uh, so what are you doing in the Bay area? Yeah. So we're continuing to uh, get the word out about this crime problem. We're recording this on Thursday, October 12th. Um, we have a rally over in branch 1111 in Oakland, California this evening. So we will get a lot of the local media out there and just try to once again, you know, just raise the raise the profile of the issues, so to speak, and let people know. Thankfully, here in this area, that we're starting to see some positive impact. The uh, Department of Justice had a press conference here within the last couple of days and announced some a, a number of different arrests for crimes against members in the uh, against our members in the Bay Area. So that's good, but we got to keep keep pushing forward. So we've got this one happening today, and then. Um, over the weekend, we've got down in Las Vegas a couple of different things happening. Number one, our committee of presidents, where a lot of our branch and state presidents come and, you know, talk about issues. And, you know, thankfully, I'm fortunate to, you know, get an invitation to go and update them on what's going on and, you know, have a discussion. So that'll take place down in Las Vegas. At the same facility, following that, we will have, starting on Monday of next week, our annual seminar for our health benefit plan. And it's a very exciting time for our health plan. You know, of course, we continue to strive to improve benefits and make the plan better and, you know, reinvest as much as we possibly can uh, while being sure we can remain, you know, giving the best benefits to our members at the most affordable premiums. But we have a, a different dynamic than we've had in the past in play with the passage of postal reform 
last year, we are kind of full speed ahead in terms of implementing the pieces of that legislation that have a significant impact on health care, and that's the, the Medicare integration. So we'll have, I think we've got over 400 folks that'll be there, our health benefit representatives from the branches all around the country. If you're in a branch that's got one of those, you know that those people are an excellent resource for you. And, you know, at this particular seminar, we will course educate them on the benefit changes and the things that are new but also we'll spend a significant amount of time there with all the folks from HPP Stephanie Stewart our director of health benefits as well as the, the excellent staff we have out there our three national trustees will be involved in it we'll have you know the vendors from a lot of different places folks with CVS Caremark who you know administers our prescription drug coverage and Cigna who's provides the network of doctors and providers that are covered under our plan. So there'll be a pretty broad range of topics covered, but, you know, a little bit different than what we've had in years past. We'll spend a significant amount of time ensuring that those HBRs and the, the folks that are present there can really understand what's going to take place in 2024 as it relates to implementation of that law and the, the Medicare integration and the ultimate goal there is just to be sure they know what's going to take place so that uh, in their roles as health benefit representatives at the branch level. Uh, the most important thing is to arm them with the knowledge they need to be able to answer questions and, and assist our members that uh, as as we move into 2024 and um, as we, we did a whole episode on this issue back, uh, I guess, a couple months ago, but there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen and it's important that those people are prepared to answer questions and, and assist our members as we move into that uh, that transition. So really excited to uh, be out here and be with our brothers and sisters in the in the Bay Area. We've got a number of these other rallies planned. We've got one in Denver, Colorado coming up, Houston, Texas, and then the one today is, is in Oakland, California on one side of the bay with Branch 1111, we also have one planned here in a couple of weeks for Branch 214 in San Francisco. So we'll continue the full court press there to, you know, be sure that we do everything we can possibly do to address in different ways this problem that's um, really, you know, along with collective bargaining at the forefront of our priorities. And that's keeping our members safe from the violent crime that we've unfortunately seen increase across the country. I just wanted to note the... Um... Next week is the dreaded week two of Leadership Academy for this class. That's a public speaking and writing. So just thinking about all the people that are coming in the class that's coming into Baltimore, and I hope they have safe travels. If you didn't have them scared enough already of the public speaking, I'm sure listening to the podcast will, <laughs> will bring them some comfort. Yeah. Can't <laughs> do any worse than me. Yeah, that's right. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, today's episode, we have a special guest on. We have Secretary Treasurer Nicole Ryan. Brad, you want to talk a little about Nicole? Yeah. So Nicole has uh, been our Secretary Treasurer for a long time now. I think about nine years. She'll probably tell us specifically how long in uh, in the interview. But if you've read your postal record for October, you you or, or listened to it in the audio format that we put out there along with this podcast feed, you probably saw she wrote this month about a lot of things related to the convention and what happens there with delegates and resolutions and amendments. And, you know, while the national convention doesn't take place until August of next year in Boston, and it's roughly every two years it happens, there's a ton of work, both at the headquarters level as well as at the branch level and, and different things that throughout the year, um, really up to a year prior to the convention. 
responsibilities as far as electing delegates and, you know, all those things that uh, we have to do to prepare for the convention. So we thought it'd be a good idea that even though it's, I don't know, what are we, about 10 months out from the convention, there's already a lot happening there. So definitely, uh, I think, good timing to get Nicole on. And we'll talk about the convention. We'll specifically focus on, for, for those that maybe you're listening, if you've, you know, never served as a delegate at a national convention, you know, just some some education, and hopefully it'll be informative to you in terms of what those delegates do, how they're selected, and what happens at a convention. You know, it's there's a lot of things that take place. We do workshops and trainings and, you know, a number of different things. But ultimately, the primary focus of the convention is really to chart the course for our union in the present and the future. And those elected delegates from each branch are you know, the people that in a democratic fashion, little d democratic, make those decisions. So Nicole has uh, been doing this a long time now. So she will dig into, uh, you know, all things convention related as far as delegates and resolutions and amendments. And um, I'm sure we'll probably at some point talk a little bit of, even though Nicole's from Nebraska, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the Kansas Jayhawks. It's kind of tough to have a conversation with her without that coming up, at least briefly. So excited to have Nicole on. She'll be a great guest. I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing from her. Yeah, I hate people like that. Go birds. (laughs) So we're fortunate on this episode of You Are the Current Resident to have a special guest, and she is our secretary treasurer, Nicole Ryan. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? I am doing great. So the idea of having you on this episode really started with your postal record article in the October magazine that I would suspect most of our listeners, if they haven't read it or listened to it already, that they'll do that um, real soon. But before we get into kind of all things convention, as you wrote in that article, why don't we just start with a little bit of your background, and you've been Secretary Treasurer for a pretty long time now. <laughs> but even prior to that, if you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about what you did prior to becoming Secretary Treasurer. Sure, I'd love to. I, I was fortunate to become the National Secretary Treasurer in December of 2014. So that's when I changed positions um, at headquarters. Um, before that, I was actually the assistant secretary treasurer for NELC, and I had done that since um, 2009. I was the assistant secretary treasurer. And then, gosh, before that, I was a regional administrative assistant for Region 5. And before I did that, I did lots of things with my branch. My branch is Branch 8, Lincoln, Nebraska. And I was the branch president. I was branch secretary at one point. I was a steward. And then I was also um, the state president for Nebraska before I left and went to the Region 5 office. I did that in 2006 is when I went to the Region 5 office in St. Louis. So that's kind of a, a roundabout, you know, thing of, of some of the things that I've done. So Cool. So um, for the purposes of this conversation, we are going to focus on just one of Nicole's many duties as Secretary Treasurer, and that is all things convention from preparation to what actually happens during the week. But uh, I I think we're going to focus on today kind of what happens at the convention in regard to the business of the union, the the 
delegates that we'll talk about in a minute and and just a lot of the, the things that go on during the week as far as resolutions and amendments and stuff like that. But before we get into that, I think there's one thing that we definitely need to clarify. Nicole is from Branch 8. She's a letter carrier from Lincoln, Nebraska. She, however, is not a Nebraska Cornhusker. So if you want to clear that up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Although my branch and state tried for many years to convert me, they couldn't change the fact that I'm originally from Kansas. That's where I was born and raised. And I went to the University of Kansas. So anybody that knows me knows I'm a huge Jayhawk fan. Sorry for everybody that's not a Kansas fan, but definitely that's my home um, also is back in Kansas. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're uh, definitely a big basketball fan, but football's getting better. So I know are, it. Things are it's, improved. It really is. Basketball is always great, but I have enjoyed the success of the football team. That those those times are few and far between. So and enjoying it for sure. Okay, so let's move into the topic today. And as I mentioned, we want to get into a lot of stuff related to the convention, but specifically, we're going to focus on what the people that attend the convention, what they actually do and, and what their responsibilities are. And it's probably fair to say that some of our listeners are people that have attended multiple national conventions and are familiar with everything that takes place there. And I think there's probably others that are listening that maybe have never been to a convention and don't have a lot of knowledge about what goes on. So given that, let's start with at, at a pretty basic level. And we have thousands of people that attend a convention. Uh, north of 5,000 or so. Um, yes. And those folks that attend the convention are often referred to and constitutionally for us are called delegates. So let's start there with what is a delegate to an NALC national convention? So a delegate is somebody that has been elected by the branch to go to the convention to basically act on behalf of the members of their branch for the business of the NELC. I, I think that's probably the simplest way to describe it. So the delegates that are elected that go to the national convention, um, when we're in convention, we're conducting the business of the union. So that every two years, that national convention is a huge, for lack of better words, it's a, it's a huge union meeting, right? Where, where the delegates are acting on the business of the NELC. And I know we'll talk about it later, but that includes resolutions and amendments and, and all sorts of other business. But that's what a delegate does, is they represent the branch and they have a vote at the convention on anything that is put before the body. Yeah, and yeah, I think you made a really good point there in that it, in a lot of ways, is like a gigantic branch meeting. So no different than those of you that are listening to attend your branch meetings, you have motions and things like that that are made and um, the folks, the members there vote on them. That essentially the same thing happens at the national convention. And that's a indication of, you know, our union fortunately has a, a long and proud history of being a very democratic, a little d democratic uh, union. So you mentioned that delegates are elected. So why don't you kind of explain to us just generally how that works? How do we determine how many delegates a particular branch is entitled to? When roughly does that process typically take place in advance of a convention? Just get into that a little bit, if you would. Okay, so how delegates are elected is actually provided for in the NELC Constitution. And it talks about how, when the election should take take place and how many delegates a branch or state association is allowed. So it says 
in the Constitution that delegates for a branch to a national convention are to be elected before the December before December of the year preceding the convention. So when it comes to delegate elections, that's normally happening this time of year because they should be elected prior to the end of the year. State associations are a little different because, of course, they don't meet as often. So uh, the state bylaws usually dictate how the state association elects their delegates at large. So per the Constitution, each branch is given one delegate for every 20 members or a fraction thereof. And all that means is we round up, right? So if you've got 22 members, you get two delegates. And the way it works is that the Constitution states that as of October 1st of the year preceding the convention, the members paying dues to the national for your branch, that is the date and that is the the pay period we use to do the calculation for how many delegates your branch is allowed. So right now, of course, October 1st just happened. So when we get that file from the Postal Service with the dues information for that pay period that includes October 1st, that is when we will run that report and it will calculate how many delegates a branch is allowed to send to the national convention. And it doesn't matter because I get this question sometimes. Well, later on, maybe their membership went up or later on their membership went down. The Constitution bases it on that date as of October 1st. So it doesn't matter if your branch has more members later or less members. It's based on that October 1st calculation. So we will very soon be sending out what we call the convention call. And that always goes out in October. And the reason for that convention call is to give some basic information about some of the things that we're talking about now and some of the things I also put in my postal record article. But the bigger thing that that convention call does is it includes the card that says your branch is allowed this many delegates for the Constitution. So that's the biggest thing the convention call will do. So that will be coming out and it will be sent out to every branch and it is mailed to the branch's secretary of record that we have in our database. And so if you are a secretary and you're listening to this, just know that before the end of October, that will be mailed out to you and that will give you the allowed delegates for your branch. Gotcha. So that'll be those of you that are in branch officer positions and leadership, you can look for that coming relatively soon. So when these thousands of delegates from branches and state associations all over the country come to the convention, there's a lot of stuff that's available to them. We do a ton of workshops and give them the opportunity to to learn and get kind of the latest information about a number of different topics from things like basic shop steward training to all things grievance arbitration procedure to our legislative and political activism to community service to postal finances, you name it. Throughout the entire week, there's, there's all sorts of stuff like that. But these delegates also have, uh, as it relates to the general session of the convention, a constitutional duty. So why don't you explain to us what they actually do there in terms of once you're elected a delegate and you attend a convention, what your responsibilities are when it comes to representing the members of your branch or, or your state association, you know, whoever you're representing once you get to the convention. What is it that they actually do when they get there? 
Well, in addition to all the things that you talked about, which I think is great, you know, we have our business session, we call it. It's our general session where the actual business of the NELC happens. But as you said, Brian, we, we do workshops before that general session starts in the morning. We have workshops in the afternoon. So a lot of the delegates, you know, take advantage of that because that's an educational offering that we're given at the convention. But as far as the general session where the business happens, that is where the delegates you know, responsibility is to act on anything that is brought to the floor to actually vote on. And I don't know if you want to talk about now, you know, we have constitutional amendments that may be submitted that are going to be debated and the delegates there would vote on whether they approve the change to the constitution or not. We have many resolutions that are submitted. Um, the resolutions can be something pertaining to something, uh, that would affect a legislative position. Um, a lot of them have to do with our national agreement with things that, that have been proposed for consideration of whether we want to pursue some, you know, negotiating something in our contracts. So there's all these um, resolutions and amendments that could come to the floor and we vote on them at the convention. So the delegates there, they're that voice and vote, right? So they have that vote of whether to approve or disapprove anything that's proposed to the body. Yeah, and, and this body uh, at the convention, the elected delegates are the supreme authority for charting the course of our union uh, in, the, in both the present and the future. So, Nicole, you've mentioned a couple times, and, and really everything that we've talked about so far is set forth in the NALC Constitution. So why don't you explain maybe to, to some of our, whether they're newer listeners or, or maybe don't have a, a lot of background or knowledge of what that Constitution is, just what that document is, what it includes, and how that relates to the things that we're talking about here. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, the NALC Constitution, you know, obviously is the governing rules of, of the NALC. They are in compliance with the law. They're in compliance with DOL regulations, but they are the governing documents for how we operate as a union. But the book that's the Constitution also has different sections. So there's the National Constitution that has provisions that relate to headquarters, but also has provisions that relate to branches and states because as we're talking about the provisions for electing delegates, it's actually in the national constitution. There's also a section called the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate Federal Branches that governs, just like it says, branches, right? Then there's a section for the government of state associations. So those are the governing rules over our state associations. And then also there are there's a constitution general laws in that book that relate to our health benefit plan and also the Mutual Benefit Association. So that constitution has all kinds of information on, on why we do the things that we do. Just in fact, the constitution dictates when the national convention is going to happen. That's why it's always in, in the months that we have it because the constitution mandates that it be held in, in, in either late July or, or August. So yeah, there's lots of things in there that that relate to things that we do that aren't just by chance. It's because the Constitution directs us to do it. Yeah, and, and as you said, there's, you know, unions are regulated by the Department of Labor. There's all sorts of laws that are applicable to, you know, the governance of unions and, and all that stuff in our Constitution is 
consistent with you know the things that, that we're required by law to do. So that Constitution, you know, very much like the United States Constitution, or you know, if you're out there in a branch and you're familiar, your branch has bylaws and we have laws. Over time, things change, and and whether that's circumstances that dictate you know a need to change that Constitution or um, sometimes uh, I think people just come up with a, a better way of doing things in, in a more, more modern age. So from time to time, that constitution has to be amended. And that's one of the big responsibilities of not just at the convention of the delegates that are there, but certainly of the branches, the state associations, that the NALC executive council, our national officers that kind of govern our union between conventions is putting forth potential amendments to that constitution and those things are handled at the at the convention itself by the delegates. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that amendment process is and and sort of how that works. Sure. And and I know you all be surprised but there's actually a section in the constitution that talks about how our constitution can be amended and it's actually article 19 of the NEOC constitution and it talks about um, how proposed changes to the Constitution are made. And it, it specifically says that either a branch or the executive council can propose a constitutional change to the convention. It has to be endorsed by two-thirds of the members of whatever body that is. For example, if a branch has a constitutional amendment that they're, they're wanting to propose, they have to take it to the branch it has to be endorsed by two-thirds of the members there at the meeting, and then it has to be forwarded to headquarters for consideration of the delegates at the National Convention. Now, the Constitution is very strict on the time frame that that has to happen, and it says that, it, that they have to be received um, prior to the convention happening, right? So there's a deadline for when amendments have to be received at headquarters. And for the Boston Convention, which is going to be August 5th through 9th of 2024, the deadline to get proposed amendments to headquarters is June 5th of 2024. And that's to be in compliance with the requirements of the Constitution. So in addition to the, the constitutional amendments that are submitted that the delegates there at the convention um, consider and, and ultimately vote on one way or the other. We also, and yeah, I think you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the responsibilities of the delegates. In addition to amendments to the Constitution, they can also submit branches, state associations can also submit resolutions. And those resolutions, we have a way of categorizing them, but in a, in a somewhat similar way to the amendments, that's something that the delegates deal with there. So why don't you just talk to us about what a resolution is and then kind of what that process looks like. Sure. A resolution is basically um, a proposal that can come from a branch or a state association, unlike amendments, where only a branch of the executive council can submit it. State associations can also submit resolutions along with branches. And a resolution is basically a proposal that comes to the convention that says, hey, in light of this information, I propose that we change something right it could be it could be the the contract it could be the jcam it could be our position on something legislatively it could be something to do with the laws of the mba or you know it could be any of those things 
but basically it is just something put forth that says, I think we should consider doing this, right? And it's some kind of suggestion from a branch. So those will come up to us. And it, like I said, like Brian said, they'll be put into categories, right? There's, if they have to do with the national working agreement, they're put in a category. If they have to do with legislation, they're put into a category. And then they go to the appropriate body up at headquarters to review. But, you know, it's hard to describe what it actually is. You know, somebody may say, I think we should change the provision in this section of the, of the contract. And I think we should change it to this. And that is basically what the resolution is. It's submitted that way. We resolve to do this. I don't know if that's a good explanation or if you've got something to add on that, Brian, but that, that's basically what it is. They're proposing a resolve that we do something, that we take some course of action. Yeah, and then we, um, for the purposes of, I guess, really simplicity and, and kind of order of business at the convention, you know, we do categorize them. So some are very clearly things that a branch or state proposes that we resolve to negotiate something, which would be, if passed by the delegates, become an official bargaining position of the NELC. We have others that are related to potential legislation, you know, that we would resolve to work to, you know, create and, and pass some particular legislation. And there's other resolutions that are kind of more general in nature. So um, right. we, we categorize all of those and, and we actually print them as well as the amendments in a book that is given to the delegates when they get to the convention and they register. So, Nicole, there's a process that the NLC Executive Council, so for the listeners out there, the Executive Council is the 10 elected resident officers. Um, Nicole and I are two of the 10. The three national trustees and the 15 national business agents that have the responsibility for doing a lot of things, the, the main one being to kind of govern and chart the course for NALC between conventions. But when it comes to these amendments and resolutions, there's a process in advance of the convention that we go through in terms of review and research and, and then ultimately provide information just for context and even a recommendation for the delegates um, right. that are there to talk about. So why don't you talk about what that looks like and kind of what we do internally in preparation for sure. the convention and consideration of those amendments and resolutions. Absolutely. So any proposed change to the Constitution or any resolution comes to my office uh, as Secretary Treasurer to start with. When it comes to the resolutions, there's, there's a couple of other steps that we would do that we wouldn't do for a constitutional change. The first thing we'll do is we'll do research on that proposed resolution to see if it's something the body has already voted on. Because from time to time, we get resolutions for things that the, the members have already said yes, and that's our position. So we'll do research to see if it's been sent up before. If it has, what we'll do is we'll write back to either the branch or the state association that sent it to us and say, hey, you know, we appreciate you sending this up, but this is to let you know we're not putting this forward to the delegates at the Boston Convention because it's already an accepted position of the NELC and we'll provide them the information on the convention where it actually happened and we'll actually send them, you know, the page from the from the proceedings that, that shows where it was approved by the members already. So we we at least do that so we know whether or not it's already the position of the NELC or not. If it's a new one that that's not the case, then we will log it in 
and we'll forward it to the appropriate, you know, individuals to look at. And what we'll do as a council is before the convention, we'll look over every single proposed amendment, every single proposed resolution, because what happens is, is the executive council will give a recommendation to the membership and the delegates that are at the national convention of what our recommendation is on whether it should be approved or not approved. And I can say that when we look at those resolutions and amendments, you know, our, our hope is that, um, you know, that we can approve that, that idea. Right. And I, and, and Brian can chime on, on this as well. You know, that's our disposition to hopefully be able to give a recommendation of approval for that, you know, proposed resolution. It doesn't always happen because, you know, we just got to look at whether that resolution is beneficial for, for all of our members or not, but we try to at least look at all of them in a, in a manner where we're trying to see if there's a way we can get to approval. And sometimes we may suggest that maybe it just needs to be amended a little bit. And we, we ask the makers at the convention if they're willing to, to amend what they're proposing. Um, and then, and then it, we could recommend approval, but the, the council will talk about every single one of them. And then we will give our recommendation to the delegates at the convention on whether it should be approved or not approved. But ultimately, the delegates that are there are going to vote either yes or no. Our recommendation is to just give guidance, but the delegates that are there will, will make their own decision. So that's kind of how the resolutions are handled and, pro and processed at headquarters. I do want to say that Brian mentioned the resolutions and amendments book that we give to every delegate. And all, all that language is in there. The recommendation of the council is in there. Um, and in order to have a resolution printed in that book, it has to be up to headquarters before June 5th of 2024. But we accept resolutions after that date. That's just the date that it has to be approved in the book. So if we get one after that, Although it won't be in the book, we'll put it on the screen at the convention and, and we'll still discuss it. So it, the deadline for resolutions is different than amendments. Nicole, you mentioned something really important there that I just want to reinforce. When the executive council, and this is, you know, speaking, I think Nicole and I both from a personal perspective, but also this has just simply been the way the executive council um, in the 10 plus years, Nicole and I have both been on the council and dealt with this at multiple conventions. When we get resolutions and the, the executive council reviews them, we really do make a, you know, go to great lengths to approve them. Now, oftentimes, as she also mentioned, there are certain things that normally are unintended um, in maybe the way something's drafted that might be inconsistent with you know, some other resolution or, or something that doesn't really go to the primary purpose of what the resolution is that, that we often will have a conversation uh, with the maker of the resolution and, you know, say, hey, you know, if, if you make this little small amendment, then, you know, the council would be willing to recommend approval. So um, we do go to a great deal of effort to you know, try our best to approve each of those, even if it takes some some slight modifications. So, Nicole, just to wrap up, I know we've talked about amendments, we've talked about resolutions. 
And uh, I just want to be sure that that everybody is clear on the timelines that there is, you know, a, a constitutional timeline for amendments. Uh, resolutions, as you also mentioned, you know, there's really no deadline in terms of when they have to be submitted. We, you know, routinely accept them while we're at the convention, but there is a deadline in terms of getting it printed. So why don't you just one more time, you know, explain the deadline for amendments and then, you know, also with the resolutions that there's not a deadline for submission, but then what the deadline would be if, if you wish to have them printed in the book that we give to all the delegates. Right. So the so the deadline is actually going to be the same date. It's going to be June 5th of 2024 for amendments. That's the deadline to have anything submitted because the Constitution says that all of them have to be submitted at least 60 days prior to the convention. So that is the the hard deadline for having a an amendment sent to headquarters for consideration at the national convention. The same deadline of June 5th will be the deadline for us to receive any resolution for it to be printed in the resolutions and amendments booklet. And that's simply because we have to get that book off to the printer in order for it to be ready for the convention. But as Brian mentioned, we, we will take resolutions past June 5th of 2024, and we even get them from the convention floor. So those are the deadline that, or actually one deadline to keep in mind is June 5th of 2024. All right, very good. So I guess, Nicole, as we wrap up here, is there anything else convention-related? I, I know the branches are, are out there already making preparations. This, we're recording this in roughly you know, around the middle of October, and this is kind of prime time for branch elections, including delegate elections. And, and they're also you know, looking forward to getting the convention call and then the hotel reservations come and, and all that sort of stuff. But just want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to remind the branches or the members that maybe listen to this podcast, uh, anything you want to remind them of as it relates to the National Convention in 2024? Absolutely. There, I usually get a lot of questions about this. I'll write some more articles about this, but I just want to kind of lay out the time frame for how things are will be coming up. So obviously the first thing that goes out is that convention call. It'll go out in October, and it'll provide the information to all the branches on how many delegates they're allowed to the convention. Now, those are the delegates that can be there. There's also alternate delegates, which are elected, but they're elected to replace a regular delegate in case they aren't allowed to go to the convention. But, but what that card will tell you is you're, this is the maximum number of delegates you're allowed to send to the national convention. So there's nothing that any branch necessarily has to do with the convention call. It is information and information on your delegates. Later this year, there will be information that's put out on the block of hotels that we will have in Boston. That's typically done in the December postal records. So we, we put that out in the December postal records so branches can look at the hotels and you know, uh, know what's available for the convention. What will happen at the first part of February is when the delegate eligibility lists go out. That is when branches tell us who the elected delegates are. So again, there's nothing you have to do with the convention call in October other than open it, read it, know the information, and know how many delegates you're allowed. 
the actual registration of your delegates will come later. That'll be the 1st of February. And, and we will send out more information on that as it gets closer. And I'll talk about in my articles about how that will be coming out. But that's when you actually have the branches have to actually tell us who the elected delegates for the branch are. So those are the big timelines that are coming up. Call. And then, of course, in February is when we'll send out the information on registering your delegates. Great. So for anyone listening, if you uh, want you know, more information about this, you can go to our website at NALC.org. Up across the top, um, you'll see a tab for union administration. And underneath that tab, there's if you want to read the Constitution that we talked about, you'll see a, um, a link to the Constitution. And then there's also a page that you'll see under that same union administration tab about national conventions and rap sessions. So our national convention is next year in Boston um, in August. And then during the uh, off convention years, we have a rap session. That's November 17th through 19th this year down in New Orleans. But all that information is there. And, and Nicole mentioned this, but a really, really good resource for those of you in branches that are making preparations is just to look at our postal record articles. If history holds true between now and sometime, let's say next summer, I'm sure Nicole will write in each month's post a record a, a lot of different stuff as it relates to convention preparation. Well, Nicole, I appreciate you taking some time to get on the podcast with us this week. And I'm sure a lot of folks learned a, a lot of stuff. And I know we're full steam ahead and excited about our preparation for the convention next summer in Boston. Yes, it'll be here. It'll be here before you know it. And we are busy getting ready for it up here at headquarters. Awesome. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Here's our Ask the Mailbag segment for this week. We have uh, Rick in Colorado wants to know about the timelines for signing up for benefits when you convert from a CCA to a PTF. Could you get into that, Brian? Sure. So uh, first, when you convert from CCA to, it could be PTF or or full-time, when you convert to a career position, there are benefit options that you have. And, you know, the, the most common of those are things like health insurance. Most folks, once they convert to career status, they, you know, can choose one of the, most people anyway, choose one of the high option plans. Hopefully the NELC plan is the best one. But then there's other things. There's a thrift savings plan uh, where you're automatically enrolled at a certain level. Um, but when it comes to those initial benefit elections, such as health insurance, there is a defined period of time where you, the employee, after conversion, have to make those elections. And that time frame is 60 days. Now, when someone is converted, most of the time, um, you know, you, you, you'll get notified, you'll get a Form 50 in the mail, you know, your conversion date is this day. Typically, this happens pretty quickly. So people take a look at, you know, what options are available to them and, and they make a selection. It's normally not an issue. We do, however, from time to time, sometimes as a result of a grievance settlement or some error on the Postal Service's part that we, the union, have to go back and get them to correct, we have circumstances where people are converted retroactively. So Postal Service doesn't do what they were supposed to do. We address that and say the conversion date should have been X date. Sometimes that goes back further than 60 days. So if that happens, if someone, through no fault of their own, 
is converted and that 60-day period, during that 60-day period, they don't have the opportunity to make those benefit elections, there are ways we can address that. So there's just a couple things I, I would say to those that are listening that, you know, may be converting to a, a career position. Everybody that's listening, if you're not a career, if you're, you will convert to a career position. Number one, uh, once you get the information, make those elections as quickly as you can. They go into effect immediately, you know, as early as the beginning of the next pay period. So usually within a matter of days. However, if you are in a situation where due to a retroactive conversion or some other circumstance, there are other things that can happen too, and you don't have that opportunity during that 60-day period, you should contact your national business agent and let them know that. And uh, as I mentioned, there are ways that we can work with the Postal Service to open up that door, so to speak, to give people uh, the opportunity to make those benefit elections. And as always, if you got any any questions about that stuff, feel free to reach out to your national business agent. If you don't know who that is, you can find them on the NALC website. If you open up your postal record on the inside cover, on the left side, just open up the first page, you'll see, you know, your NBAs listed there in their territory. So, you know, as always, you should feel free to reach out to them if you've got any questions about it. Our next question comes from Chris Gemmes from West Palm Beach, Florida. What's the reason we can't go back to table one pay scale? It would help a lot of us out during this hard time. And the last podcast said you would combine table one and two. How would that work? Yeah, so, well, first off, there is no, you know, particular reason why we couldn't go back to table one. In fact, you, you will hear from our guest today, from Nicole, our secretary treasurer, talk about the resolution process at the convention. And, and part of that resolution process are resolutions that set the official bargaining positions of NELC. We have a resolution that has been approved and is an official bargaining position of NALC to just eliminate Table 2 and go back to Table 1. That said, as I've talked about on previous podcasts, the most important element of Table 1, and any pay table for that matter, is the amount of pay. So table one is most definitely more reflective uh, in terms of starting pay and the way someone progresses through the pay scale, uh, much more reflective of where we want to eventually land in this round of collective bargaining. That said, table one also has some issues from a structural standpoint that in years past have caused problems. So for example, if we set the dollar amounts aside for a minute and we only look at things like the waiting periods between steps, when you look at table one, you have a couple things. You have differing waiting periods throughout the pay scale. You also have differing percentage increases. Some are large at certain places, some are very small. When you look at table two, you've got equivalent waiting periods and you've got equivalent pay increases throughout. The structural issues that in the past have resulted from table one have to do with the unintended consequence of creating something called pay anomalies, which I, I'm not going to get too deep into. Um, frankly, we have not uh, had one of these in five years. The last national grievance we had about this was in 2018. And we resolved it. Prior to that, we had had multiple ones over the years, and 
just to be quite honest about it, I'm probably still a little scarred from dealing with those. They're incredibly complex. They typically occur when someone moves, for example, back in the old days from city carrier grade one to grade two. Um, we're all the equivalent of grade two now, so that's not an issue anymore. But we have to be mindful of that when we bargain. So to just answer the question point blank, there is no reason we could not go back to table one. That said, in an ideal world, I think we would have a pay table that was more reflective of table one in terms of the dollar amounts, at least at the starting pay. Now, we want the pay at the end, at step P, to be higher than it is in table one. And then structurally, it would be a little more consistent with table two to avoid potential anomalies like that that can negatively impact our members and their pay in the future. So that, that is a kind of a long way of explaining the thought process behind the approach of, of just looking separately at the pay amounts, 100% the pay amounts table one is much more reflective of where we want to be. But from a structural standpoint, to avoid those issues that have negatively impacted our members in the past, we want to do everything we possibly can to set the pay table, whatever pay table it is we come up with in negotiations or hopefully ultimately achieve an interest arbitration if that's where we end up. A pay table that structurally, again, does not result or, or doesn't run the risk of creating those anomalies that end up negatively affecting our members. So it's kind of a complicated problem, but ultimately the most important thing is the dollar amount. That's the most important thing we negotiate. And that is, you know, that's why we all go to work. We go to work for the, for the pay and, and the benefits. And no question, table one is, you know, much more again, reflective of, of where we want to be, at least uh, in terms of the, the starting pay and the progression. But, you know, in this round of bargaining, you know, we believe that even looking at table one, you know, when we look at the higher steps, the, you know, down at the end, step O, step P, you know, that the work that we do is, you know, should be rewarded by being paid more than what table one pay, even pays us right now. So hopefully that uh, answers your question and gives a little more context to what I've talked about earlier. And our final question this week comes from Mary Beth in Pennsylvania. She says, the cost of uniforms are too damn high. Is there anything we can do in negotiations to get more bang for our buck? Mary Beth, you are exactly right. This is a topic that we have spent a significant amount of time on in collective bargaining. So just historically, uniform allowances have pretty consistently increased by about the same percentage over the years for, you know, 50 plus years when you look at kind of the modern era of our collective bargaining. To some degree, the prices of the uniform items over time have increased at different points in time commensurate with our allowance increase. But the fact of the matter is in the last few years, they have increased from a percentage standpoint far beyond what our allowance has increased. And the, the bottom line is with the amount of our current uniform allowance compared to the prices of the uniform items that letter carriers need to buy every year, we simply cannot with that allowance buy the things that we need. That is the bottom line. So, you know, the problem is very simple at this point. The solution to the problem is not so simple because 
really just increasing our allowance a significant amount kind of at some point puts us right back in the same place because of the lack of controls over the the pricing you know for example that the vendors charge for different uniform items so what we have spent a lot of time on is just looking at the uniform program from a structural standpoint I, I think it's gotten to the point where you know certainly the union believes this and i think the postal service even sees at this point that we've got to kind of overhaul the system so that you know for us the goal is very simple to ensure that letter carriers are able to get the uniform items that we need and with the current system we are just simply not able to do that so yes it is a big topic of collective bargaining it's something we spend a significant amount of time on we continue to work on it um it is a large complex issue it's one that you know has a lot of moving parts there's a lot of history involved with it you know there's a lot of us that you know buy our uniform from a, a single source and a lot of letter carriers have done that for a long long time and you know trying to balance the cost control which is the priority no question about that and us being able to get what we need but also ensuring that the quality remains and that the access is there that you know, it's, it's easy for us to to get the items that we need. So absolutely recognize that's a, a huge problem. And I can promise you that's a very, very big part of negotiations. And, and I feel pretty confident that we um, will be able to come to some kind of agreement that will improve on that situation. I, the last thing I'll say about it, just to, I don't know, warning may not be the right word, but just to let people know um, when it comes to the idea of doing a significant modification or, or may even classified as an overhaul of a system like this, it's not something that happens quickly. So there's kind of two pieces to this. Number one is what does the program itself look like long-term? Number two is once we figure out the time it would take to implement whatever these changes are, we also got to do something in the interim. So um, if that takes us you know, a year or, or six months or a year and a half or whatever the case may be to implement whatever changes we can agree on, there's got to be something done in the interim too, because um, I think everybody listening to this would agree the kind of path we're on and, and currently with our uniform allowance and the cost of the items, it's just simply not sustainable, even for a short period of time. So um, that's a priority of ours and uh, something that we've got a lot of resources and a lot of time dedicated to uh, finding a solution there. And the Postal Service, I'll say, is, you know, also recognizes the problem and, you know, realizes it's gotten to a, it's gotten to a certain point where, you know, we've got to make some pretty significant changes here. So big topic and uh, something that I feel, feel pretty confident that, that we'll have an opportunity to make a lot of progress on. And, and ultimately, once again, the goal is to for letter carriers to be able to get the uniform items that we need. That was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question, you can email us at social at NALC.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. And please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. If you have any questions to submit or have feedback about the podcast, 
Again, please email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side and may your union have your back. Thanks for listening. See you next week.